You're listening to Out of the Box with Rosie Tran. I'm here with J.D. Walker, screenwriter and professor of documentary films at Santa Clara University. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I am really happy and excited to have you here. You've done some amazing things recently in the past few years. And I wanted to talk about your films. You have three films that you're working on right now. One that is in production called The Postwoman, which... It's in development. It's in development. Mm -hmm. The story that you've told me about is amazing. I'd love to share that with listeners. And then you won the Sundance Film Festival screenwriting contest. I did, yeah. With a screenplay called Oscar Michaud, and also your um, were just option to write a screenplay mm-hmm. um, called Black Wall Street. So let's talk about The Postwoman. Um, I like this story because it has a transgender, kind of, not transgender, but, um, you know, right now it's really, really big in the media, the issue of gay marriage and people coming out and it's kind of like a heated issue and your film addresses this. Yeah, it does. Uh, I think the topic is timely, uh, not only because it addresses a queer woman of color's experience coming out, particularly as a mother to her husband and to her children, um, but it also helps to, you know, bring more complex roles and more give more complex roles to African-American actresses. You know, if we look at most of the images of African-American women on screen, uh, they're mostly stereotypical images. And a lot of the roles that I see as a black woman writer and director for black women are really limiting in the sense that, you know, they're um, either sapphires or they're matriarchs or, you know, they're not really human. We talked about that a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Well, not us, but it was talked about a little bit last year. Uh, or Maybe it was two years. I'm not sure. But so The Help, you know, mm-hmm. was like a big film. And there was a lot of criticism that, hey, here is a film where the actress is getting an Oscar nod for being a black house servant. Right. And then over, I don't know, 50, 60 years ago, Gone with the Wind, mm-hmm. you know, it's the same role, mm-hmm. you know, with the black servant woman. And then 50, 60 years later in Hollywood, it's like the same thing over and over and over again. Right. It is quite ironic to see, you know, these same images, you know, and black women being rewarded, you know, for playing these images, you know, that most white audiences may be used to us, you know, being. So, you know, a lot of these um, roles are, you know, I don't want to discredit the role of black women as domestics because, you know, black women. It's a historic. It's historic. Yeah. They've contributed greatly to, you know, our, you know, uh, you know, other generations of, you know, domestics, you know, so black women as, you know, doing domestic work has been very um, profound, you know, and inspiring. But yet and still, I still believe that, you know, there's room for more roles for African American women on screen, not just as the house servant or the domestic (laughs) (laughs) shucking and jiving. I think it, I think Hollywood is kind of behind uh, reality mm-hmm. in a way and it's kind of ironic because you think you know people are making movies and films and and a lot of people that make creative work are artistic and forward-thinking yet there's this structure from you know the corporatized sh- studio system or the corporatized um, television system that kind of keeps things a-, a very certain way and you know I, can, I I talk about this evolution as um Everything is about 10, 20 years behind. So Mm -hmm. about 20 years ago, you had, for example, Rosie Perez. Mm -hmm. And Rosie Perez was always playing the sassy Latina. Mm -hmm. She was never a person. She was always the sassy Latina. And then about, you know, 10 years after that, you know, Jennifer Lopez finally got the opportunity to play a normal person. Right. Not just a Latina. Right. And you can see that. I mean, if you look at, you know, some of the movies from the 80s all the Latina characters are just these sassy Latina, spicy Latina, Mm -hmm. total stereotype. And it took 10, 20, 30 years for J-Lo to just be a a lead. I think a lot has to do with that, with the writers, you know, um, you know, who are writing the screenplays, you know, and I think that it's very important for um, African-American writers and, you know, women of color to write their own material, you know, to help humanize us on screen because nobody's going to do it for us. You know, I think it's our responsibility, you know, to do that. But what do you think about the, the difficulty of getting, I mean, you've won this amazing screenplay competition, but there's also something to be said about, you know, 
it's very difficult for women to break in the industry. Mm-hmm. There's all these initiatives and all these programs, you know, these um, uh, diversity programs and everything. And, yeah. and, and, and that's a great opportunity for women to get in. But you still look in writing rooms on TV shows and other things, and they tend to be 95% or more white male middle-aged a very specific demographic and Uh tina fey writes about this in her book where she just talks about being a female comedy writer not even a woman of color just a woman right yeah and she's and she talks about you know hey it's impossible i think sundance you know addressed this too the problems of you know um women filmmakers women directors uh just being um accepted into film festivals and having their films screened and acknowledged i think that you know, for women in general, you know, it's a problem, you know, that we are a minority in this industry. But why do you think that is? I, you know, I remember being in high school and having amazing women writers in my English class and smarts. Uh-huh. But so what is it? To, what is the difference between why do men take it to that professional level and women are still in the minority in this field when in other, it seems like other areas of, um, of the business world and the working world, you know, since women have worked transitioned mainly into the workforce in the 60s and 70s we're taking we're making major in-grounds to the point where men are being pushed out yet in Mm -hmm. writing and in media it's still this overflow of just white males it is yeah and i think people hire who they know and we know that men have largely dominated the industry that doesn't mean that women have been on set as production crew you know behind the scenes or even you know in front of the camera writing and directing um, you know, but I just read a study that was uh, looking at the academy um, and looking at the lack of diversity within the academy. And we see that 90 percent or at least 98 percent of the uh, production jobs you know, are mostly occupied by white males. And even if you're looking at LGBT cinema or LGBT scripted characters on television, GLAAD did another study showing that, you know, most of the characters that we see that are gay on screen are mostly white males. Um, and so, you know, there's something to say for women writers, for LGBT writers, you know, and women of color for stepping up to the plate to help to, you know, shift what we are seeing on screen. I think it's really important. I know as an actress, I get the same audition <laughs> every week. There's what like are you doing? there's like three <laughs> there's like three or four roles that I get, and that's it. it I will I will either be a nurse slash you know nail salon worker, or you know some type of prostitute hooker or valedictorian, and it's kind of like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> limiting. So somewhat it, broad, but you know, a little limiting. It's mm-hmm. it just makes me laugh because I've read some scripts, you know, that I've been sent for myself as an Asian woman, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like it's so dehumanizing. It's kind of you know, like in the fifties, they had the stereotype of the the dragon lady Asian right, or right. you know the immigrant or whatever, uh-huh. and. It's it seems to be one extreme or the other. Either yeah. I'm a you know prostitute that doesn't speak English, mm-hmm. you know some kind of creepy like um, erotic you know fantasy mm-hmm. for uh, obviously like very obviously a male white writer. You're like okay, this was not written by a woman at all. Searching for hotties <laughs> on set today, right? exactly at five o'clock. Or you know I'm like the nerdy Asian girl character, and I'm like okay, um, I know Asian women of all different personality types that fit every single spectrum yet there's only these two three four roles being written over and over and over again and uh, it's kind of tiring i'm like when is this going to be over yeah (laughs) when can i just be a a person (laughs) (laughs) yeah i agree i mean even searching you know as a black woman i think for women of color you know these stereotypes are still ingrained you know within you know a lot of these writers who are writing these films where they feel like, you know, to have some diversity on set, they can have, you know, one character that, you know, fulfills this stereotype. But um, I still think that, you know, it's up to us, you know, to expose, you know, these problems in the industry and to raise more awareness about it and to really start writing our own material and directing our own material and giving more opportunities for women of color, you know, as writers. Because I think one of the biggest problems is that we don't have access you know, to a lot of the um, screenwriting programs, you know, maybe film programs that others may be getting. Um, 
primarily because you're talking about how it's a closed, you know, network, you know, that's largely occupied by white males. <laughs> but, you know, it really is, you know, we all know that the industry is really about who you know, and so there's power in, you know, networking and in social media. And I think that women really must come together and create our own you know, distribution models and networks. Ava DuVernay is doing that now with her Affirm uh, program. She's um, promoting and distributing the work of other African-American writers and filmmakers. And they not only include women directors, but, you know, people who are, you know, really about making social change and really about reversing these stereotypes. You talk about the devaluation of our images on screen. Um, And so, you know, I just think that, you know, we should band together (laughs) as women, right? Yeah. Women, women of color, and, you know, produce our own material. That is just powerful. Um, Okay, so let's talk about The Postwoman, and then we'll move on to the other two films. Um, So the story is about a uh, gay gay black woman. It is. She's a postwoman. She's a postal worker who is facing a layoff as well as an impending divorce. And it's on her postal route one morning that she walks into this independent women's bookstore and she meets another woman there by the name of Nia. Um, And Nia really introduces her to um, other books about LGBT parenting um, because the character is interested in um, becoming more of herself. And so, She's been hiding her true personality, her true essence. Exactly. So it's a film that it's not just a coming out film, but it really looks at the private journey that mothers take, you know, on their quest to really um, open up to their children about their sexuality and their partner. And so the film is about how a woman of color addresses these complex issues of you know, gender oppression, racial oppression, sexism, all at the same time. So it looks at intersectionality from a black woman's perspective. Now, are these characters that you're writing based on people that you know in real life? Or is it just you write from pure, pure fantasy? You're like just <laughs> coming fantasy. up, you know, with whatever left and right? Or do you, is this a story that's familiar to you from people in your personal life? I think it's familiar in the sense that I have a number of lesbian Uh, friends who have children you know I don't have children myself um but I've always but you do have an adorable furry son I do (laughs) you know my baby he's a two-year-old lab and his name is Bailey (laughs) that's the only child I have right now yeah he's hey you're still a mom you're still a mommy (laughs) I am still a mommy I'm not a mother of a human however Uh, although I would like to be you know I think I'd like to adopt down the line too as well Um, You know, but I have friends who have children and they are in committed relationships with other women. And I always found it intriguing. Also, as a student, I went to Howard University. I graduated there with my uh, Ph.D. in (laughs) African-American. So I should be calling you Dr. Walker. (laughs) You can call me Dr. Walker, but I like Jamie. I use Jamie for film. So that's fine. Actually, I use J.D. for film. But, um, you know, I was going to college with students who were my age, you know, who had parents that were gay, um, you know, and I didn't share their experience or, you know, their reality. And, you know, I always found it intriguing how um, their parents were able to battle, you know, um, you know, going to work every day. Yeah, just to defeat these stereotypes. And here they were a happy, loving home. You know, they had children. The children were straight. The children were successful. They were defeating all these stereotypes that LGBT women can't parent. Well, I want to talk about that because I Mm -hmm. grew up having a friend that had two um, gay fathers. Mm -hmm. And there's this huge push with um, certain maybe not politically conservative, but socially conservative people that say, you know, the kids are going to be messed up. They're going to have all these issues because how are they going to know who's the daddy and mommy and blah, 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 blah. And, and there's this kind of bar and it's part of the gay marriage issue because a lot of people are saying, well, if you know, you let gays get married, then they can adopt. And I think that stems from the belief system that being gay is the, something that's morally wrong Mm -hmm. and socially deviant and that they're teaching these behaviors to their kids and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you're saying you have all these friends who have, you know, are gay or homosexual and they have kids and they're fine and healthy and great. Right. 
So where do you think these stereotypes come from? I think that... Well, because first, if they're not based... Obviously, you know these people and they're not based in reality. You see them and they're doing a mm-hmm. great job. And it would be better, in my opinion, to have two loving parents than to have a single parent that's struggling and or two abusive parents. Of course. Yet there's this this anger and resentment and, and just push against the homosexual community and getting married and having families, which in my mind destigmatizes homosexuality as this deviant thing and, and, and shows that they're, hey, they're just normal people. They, they It's not like... They want to go around running around having group orgies. Right. They actually want to have families and just be normal people. Exactly. They just have this thing. Exactly. Yeah. I think, you know, what, what's most important is that, you know, we know that the American Psychological Association, there have been several studies that LGBT parents have been able to raise children, you know, in a healthy environment and that those children come out just as healthy, you know, if not, you know, better socially, you know, than other children who are heterosexual, um, you know. Um, and so I think it's just important to continue debunking these myths. I think that that's one of my goals as a writer to um, to address these social issues on film, you know, because I, you know, I'm a former journalist. And so, you know, I love doing research and, you know, my I think my expertise is is, is writing and directing. Um, you know, more so than being an advocate or being political. You know, I'm not that person who can like go on a talk <laughs> show and talk about politics for one hour. I just can't do it. It's not in my spirit, you know, but I like working behind the scenes and using my work to affect change mm-hmm. as a writer. And so your story really shows that, you know, she's a mom, she's struggling with this and she's a good mom. Mm-hmm. She wants to be a good mom, mm-hmm. right? Right. She just is struggling with this inner turmoil. Exactly. And I don't think that we really see um, the realities of homophobia on screen, even on TV. I mean, when we look at shows like Will and Grace or Or Modern Family, it's fun. It's like fun. They're all comedies, you know, and we rarely see a drama that really addresses the reality of triple oppression, you know, Mm -hmm. for women of color. And that's by their gender, their race or their class or their sexuality. Now, what do you think about uh, kind of double, I don't know, double racism? I don't know what it would call double bigotry. Because there seems to be, you know, there's all these polls that are done that there seems to be a very high percentage of homophobia within the African-American community. Mm -hmm. It's very conservative. It's very true. So why do you think that is? Because this is a group of people that have been oppressed themselves, yet they're you know, it tends to be anti-gay. That's true. I think that people have a right to believe what they will believe. You know, I was raised in the church. You know, I was raised by two straight parents. But it doesn't mean that I cannot acknowledge a relationship, you know, by two people, you know, who are in love with each other, regardless of their gender, you know, or their class, you know, and everybody is not as open, you know, as as we are. I think that um, the problem is where we trying to force our beliefs onto other people, you know, whether it's through the church or, you know, just through, you know, any kind of dogmatic Um, religion, you know, I believe personally in, you know, a world where in which we can learn to accept each other, you know, and to acknowledge our differences, to celebrate our differences, and to celebrate love and peace and harmony on the planet, you know, it's not my job to judge, you know, what somebody else does, you know, or, you know, how they choose to live their lives. That's not my role. And I don't ever want to tell anyone, you know, what they can do and what they can't do. Um, So, you know, as far as like, you know, conservatism in the black church or the church being very uh, conservative on gay issues, you know, it's very true. There's been a lot of studies on, Um, you know, how conservative the black church has been, you know, on issues toward gay rights. There's a new documentary out right now that's called The New Black, and it looks at homophobia within the black church, particularly around the uh, quest for gay marriage in Maryland. Um, And it's a great documentary. It's been winning a lot of awards. I want to check it out. That sounds really good. Yeah, (laughs) it's uh, produced by Yvonne Welbon. Is it available online or? It is available. It, it's not available online. It's currently screening at film festivals. Okay, got it. I'll yeah. look out for it in the next few few months. It just screened at the Pan African Film Festival 
uh, I believe it was up for an NAACP award too as well. So it's been doing very well. That sounds like a very interesting story. It is a great story. Yeah, it is a great story. Um, And the producers did an exceptional job with that film. Well, the problem with a lot of these issues, I would like to know personally as a you know not just as someone who has a podcast or a comedian or to make fun of things or whatever bring light to them mm-hmm. and it, or an actress or whatever i just want to know for my information because i want to understand where people are coming from and it seems to be that um with a lot of these issues these social issues people take things very personal and get very upset when and sometimes they don't even have a reason or an explanation. You know, I know so many people who say, well, that's just wrong. I just think it's wrong. That's just what they believe. That's just what they believe. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, well, why do you think it's wrong? And they (laughs) don't have any follow-up. Right. There's just, well, that's wrong. Uh Or, you know, I have friends. um, It's ingrained. I I have a lot of um, issues with clarity within the illegal immigration uh, debate. I don't fully understand the debate. You know, my parents came here legally. And so I have asked many Hispanic American friends to explain to me what their point of view is against for or against it, whatever their point of view. Mm -hmm. And people get so heated and so angry that they can't even verbalize to me what their belief is. And I spoke with a friend recently and we were talking about uh, how in this day and age, you know, it's hard for us to even have a dialogue. I just want to have a dialogue. I just want to know what people's opinions are. Intellectual conversation (laughs) about the issues. Someone was talking to me about how, you know, journalism has changed and, you know, these talk radio shows, everybody's talking on top of each other. Bill O'Reilly's like yelling at you, shaming each other. Oh, God, I would never want to be a person on that show because, you know, I feel that I'm not really really as articulate you know verbally but you know if you give me some paper and a pen you know I can you can write it down down. (laughs) (laughs) like let me write it down first and then I'll get back to you (laughs) there isn't I really don't think there's a there is a legitimate dialogue I think people get really heated like you said these shows people are yelling at each other shaming them making trying to you know oh well the republicans are like this and the democrats are just idiots or you know get turned off or the tea party people are idiots Yeah. And I just want to I literally just wanted to know, hey, what is your point of view on this? Mm -hmm. Because I don't understand the issue. Mm -hmm. I I and and I have several friends who just got so angry and heated and I wasn't attacking them. I wasn't even saying anything. I was just saying, hey, what is your viewpoint? I don't understand the issue. Mm -hmm. And I've done so much research online on certain issues and I cannot find an up for some issues for some social issues. I can't really find an objective point of view because there's always some slant there's always some extreme point of view and i just think that we're lacking that intelligent conversation where people are i think you have the power (laughs) as a talk show host to really go deeper with those questions and to ask them when did they first learn about this or how you know how did they first hear about this you know what is your upbringing there'll be a lot of fighting on the podcast Because we've all had, you know, different upbringings. I mean, I was born and raised in the Bay Area. I'm glad to be, you know, to have been raised in a diverse environment where I was exposed to the arts. You know, the arts did so much for me as a writer and just as a human being, you know. And I think the problem is people are just not exposed to other cultures, to other people who are different from them. And so the images that they are getting, you know, they're bombarded with them from the media you know, or what they get from other people or from these sick talk shows where they're getting misinformation. Um, so I think it just all depends on where are you getting your information? Are you getting them from these talk shows? Or are you getting them from the source? You know, from the real people, the real human people who are dealing with these issues, the issues on the yeah. streets. That is very important. Um, well, I am excited. What stage of development is the film? The Post Woman is my first feature script. And uh, it did earn honorable mention in the Sundance Table Read My Screenplay contest. You are just all over Sundance. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody is looking out for me. If you're out there, Sundance, thank you so much. But that was my first feature script. And, you know, writing that film really opened doors for the other feature films that I'm working on now. That's great. Which includes um, the biopic about Oscar Micheaux. And I'm not sure if you know who he is. I don't. Tell me more. So Oscar Micheaux is the very first black director to produce a feature-length film. Um, And he produced his first feature-length film in 1918 during the height of the race riots in uh, Chicago. And between the years of 1919 and 1945, he went on 
to produce over 40 feature-length films. Oh, wow. And half of them were silent films. I was going to say, are these silent films? They are yeah. silent films, yeah. And um, he was producing, writing, and directing his films during the same time that Charlie Chaplin, you know, was on the scene with SNA Pictures. Charlie Chaplin was also in Chicago around 1914 and 1916. He really um, became famous during that time period, but... No one, you know, really chronicled Michelle in the press other than the black newspapers like the Chicago Defender or the New York Amsterdam News. And so this is a feature film that shows his journey as an African-American man, um, you know, pre-civil rights era. You know, no, we're he, so he was in Chicago. He so was in Chicago. It was a little bit more liberal. It wasn't like he was in, you know, Kentucky or something. Not necessarily liberal, but um, more open to it. I mean, he was able to make the films. He wasn't barred from doing so. This was a time he was barred. Yeah, he did he was. suffer a lot of discrimination from the Chicago censorship board because a lot of his films were about lynching, interracial marriage, and dating. Wow, back in 1918. <laughs> Exactly. That is a big deal. Isn't it a big deal? <laughs> I was like, whoa, in 1918? Yeah, I believe he was one of the first filmmakers to show an interracial kiss on scene. And they allowed it. Yeah, and you can imagine that, you know, this is during the height of the Ku Klux Klan. D.W. Griffith's film, The Birth of a Nation, screened in 1915. Which, if you guys don't know what we're talking about, D.W. Griffith's film, Birth of a Nation, is was considered at the time um, a masterpiece Mm -hmm. if you watch it now (laughs) you can see you know where there's you know innovation in cinema but it's quite racist it's a quite number of stereotypes it's a quite racist film and it um glorifies the ku klux klan it does and also uh kind of definitely reinforces the stereotype of kind of of the the white woman's fear of the black male you know, after her and all these other... The black man is buck, is rapist. Yeah. Is, you ex- know, wanting to rape black women and, you know... Wh- white women. White women. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So it did deal with the whole fear of, you know, uh, miscegenation and um, just maintaining the purity of the white race. Um, and so Oscar Michaud came along, you know, just... So how was he at this time able to make films in such a a a racist time you know this is Mm -hmm. 1918 america Mm -hmm. uh like you said civil rights isn't even passed slavery was just abolished what 50 years before that Uh so how was he able to to do this this is amazing it is quite amazing you know he was a very savvy businessman and uh he decided to relocate to a homestead in south dakota and it was on his homestead that he started writing uh, autobiographies fiction mm-hmm. so he wrote his first, first book in, in 1918 it was called The Homesteader about his life on the farm and really kind of um, tilling his own farm and you know he went door to door to his neighbors asking them to buy stock in his film company because he always wanted to write screenplays he was very savvy he was a businessman he could sell that anything. sounds extremely savvy I would never think that this is like <laughs> Kickstarter before Kickstarter <laughs> He's like, give me five dollars to make my movie about black and white people kissing. Yes, (laughs) in nineteen (laughs) eighteen, that is hilarious. You know what's so interesting about his (laughs) films is that. Oscar Michaud also, he married a black woman, but he also had this intense love for this white woman. It's a Scottish girl who he met on a homestead. And he never, ever forgot this woman. And she reappears in all of his films. Um, And he could never really consummate his relationship with this Scottish girl because of the fears of miscegenation, right? And so in most of his films, you know, that deal with colorism, discrimination, you know, due to the amount of melanin in your skin... Um, the way that he is able to resolve his love for this Scottish girl is that there's always a, a black male character who cannot marry this woman who's light enough to pass for white, you know, because of the black bourgeoisie and, you know, just different class issues within the, with, within the black community itself. Um, and so he's able to resolve this issue by showing how this Scottish girl has at least one drop of black blood. And so always by the end of the film, we learn that she's not really white. She's really black. She has one drop of black blood. And so then they can get married and then they kiss. It's kind of like the, um, the, you know, the Native American test. Like they have, if you have one tiny drop of Native American blood, you can get that scholarship to college. <laughs> well, that's hilarious. It's true. They kind of, yeah. you, the, If you have any Native American blood and you, you know, 
people try to prove yes. it any way, shape, or form because there's so many yes, um, uh-huh, yes benefits. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and with so, higher education. Yeah, very true. And you know that's how he was able to resolve his his personal turmoil his in his film. <laughs> And, you know, he was criticized, you know, because most of his leading women in his early silent films were fair-skinned women. And so he faced a lot of stigma during the time that he was filmmaking from his own community. I was going to say, was he stigmatized by the black or the white community or both? Both, Both, yeah. yeah. Both at different time periods in his his life. Um, You know, and he was such a complex figure. Um, he laid the groundwork for, you know, like you said, the whole Kickstarter revolution. <laughs> because Chicago, Back in the day, door to door with yeah. his stock certificates. <laughs> yeah, and that's exactly what it was. And Chicago, Chicago is home to the vaudeville or the Chitlin circuit. And so Michelle relocated to Chicago after being on this homestead and decided to, you know, try his hand at filmmaking. So he moved to Chicago, started freelancing for the Chicago Defender as a journalist and then writing his own screenplays. And then he went door to door to all of the African-American theaters in the South, you know, encouraging them to, you know, sell his films. Is he that's that does sound like a really good businessman. Is he originally Mm -hmm. from the South or do you know, because Michelle sounds like a French it is. It is. And there, I know there was a lot of French Creole and French Cajun. Um, uh-huh, yeah, his you know, father was. His father was. Um, I can't remember the ethnicity of his father, so you know, I'm not going to mention that. But his father was a fair-skinned man, um, and both of them were former slaves from a Kentucky plantation. I'm not sure where, but mm-hmm. Michelle and his brothers and sisters they were born in Metropolis, Illinois. Yeah, because Michelle was a French, mm-hmm. I think a French. Uh-huh, it definitely is. Um, how did you find this story to even write about it? Is, mm. Were you a fan of his films before? I was. That's a great question. I had never even seen an Oscar Michelle film until I believe it was the fall of 2009. Mm-hmm. So fairly recently, I discovered his first film. Actually, his second film, it's called Within Our Gates, and it was a film he did in 1919, which was a direct response to D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, um, really seeking, again, to demystify these stereotypes on screen um, by, you know, portraying African-Americans in leading roles as doctors, you know, policemen, lawyers. Um, and I was teaching an African-American independent cinema class, and I wanted to look at some early African-American filmmakers um, before the Harlem Renaissance era, so like post-Reconstruction era. And that's how I discovered the films of Oscar Micheaux. Um I think I discovered the film online, and, you know, I... I was just amazed that here was this feature-length film, a silent film, directed by a black man. With you know, black leading characters. <laughs> yes, and it was beautiful. I mean, it was a beautiful story. You know, it's as complex and, and as innovative as any D.W. Griffith film in terms of what he was doing, you know, with the camera. Technically. Technically, wise. yes. It's technically sound, although, you know, he didn't have the production funds, Yeah, you know, to be as... As you know, uh, you know his, they weren't high production value. But if you really study his films, you can see that you know the innovation. He kind of he knew what he was doing. Oh yeah, he was very <laughs> sharp. You know, and he was very well trained. You know, self trained man. So uh, why do you think that he doesn't get as much uh, recognition or notice as D.W. Griffith or Charlie Chaplin or someone during that time who was making films? Because there weren't that many filmmakers at the time, and you know I've. I have a degree in film and television studies and I've studied, you know, all of the films that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the average person doesn't know. I know, you know, if I said to you, W Griffith, the average person in middle America is not going to know who the heck DW Griffith is, but if you're in mm-hmm. the film world, you will, you will. Yeah. So I know these names that you're talking about mm-hmm. and, you know, but I never heard of Oscar Michaud. Why do you think he's not getting the recognition? I, I spent four years in school studying this stuff and, you know, French New Wave, et cetera, et cetera. And the name Oscar Michaud never appeared. It's the same reason why black writers and filmmakers still struggle to gain distribution and to gain recognition today. You know, we talked about that, how it's really largely a closed network. And so we don't get the press, you know, if we don't cover our own, you know, material and our own stories. The only reason why we know about Michaud is because other black writers and other black journalists decided to review his films. He wasn't being reviewed by white critics. If you look at the early cinema cinema magazines that were produced 
in Chicago, specifically like Movie Maker Magazine. Um, he's not listed. Moving Picture World. He's not even listed. And that's from 1900 all the way up through like the 30s and the 40s. Um, you know, and so these filmmakers were shunned out, you know. And, you know, of course, people knew that they were screening at this time period. So it was largely films. These were movies. They were called race movies. And that's because they were by blacks, for blacks, you know, for the empowerment of blacks, even though whites, you know, and blacks and other people of color enjoyed these films as well. Um, but but I do think that that's very interesting. It speaks to the struggle of, you know, independent filmmakers to find uh, visibility for their works. I think it's really, really difficult, especially since, you know, it is a system, you know, there's a studio system. And even mm-hmm. back then there was a studio system, you know, right. Kodak mm-hmm. and other companies kind of Universal. had a mon- had monopolies. Uh-huh. Yeah. Blacks couldn't even get on the set, you know, of Universal back when Michelle was. They had filmed. white actors in blackface. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, they didn't have. Right. It, and, and that we is. We couldn't even perform, you know, as, you, as a black person. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm laughing about it, but it's just so silly because, mm-hmm. um, why on earth would you hire a white actor to put black makeup on when you could uh, probably, uh, for a, as a business perspective, hire a black actor to be more authentic in the role? It's about control. And actually, mm-hmm. you, would pro- you could probably get away with paying the black actor less uh-huh. at the time. So it sounds like a better business plan to hire a black actor to play a black actor instead of bla- well, put it blackface. <laughs> But, you know, it's about maintaining control, you know, and giving people access, open doors. And when you open doors, people have the potential to come in and possibly take your job. Yeah. You know, and to, you know, to take over. Um, I, I laugh I at some of the films. Disturbing. There's a there is a lot of blatant racism in some of the early Hollywood films. And I'm not oh, even of, I'm not even offended by it. I mean, I saw a film on the Hallmark Channel about five years ago. It was mm-hmm. an old film. You said you're not offended by it. I'm not because it's so over the top mm-hmm. that it's like I, I'm sad that it's a part of history but looking at it from a mon- modern perspective I can't remember what the film is and I wish I could remember because mm-hmm. I, I I'm gonna find the name of it and post it in the uh, post it on your website I will which is uh, oh my website out of the box podcast.com which will have the podcast listed and I'll put it in I'll try to remember or maybe I'll Thank add an, an amendment um, to the podcast later but um I was doing comedy up in actually up in Northern California. I was in my hotel room and so I was getting ready for my show and I was just killing time and I had the Hallmark channel on and they had this film from it must have been pre 40s. Okay. I wonder what it was. Was it a musical? It wasn't. Mm -hmm. And they had the storyline was it was a Western and the storyline was that this uh, this gunslinger falls in love with an Asian woman Mm. and the Asian woman was played by a white woman and they had put really slanty eye makeup on her. (laughs) Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's comedic to me, oh, JD, awful. because it's so awful, right? Yes. And part of the storyline when I turned on the uh, TV, and I'm surprised Hallmark Channel even played this because it was so offensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, they ha- they were in the... So she was Chinese, and he had brought her to um, a restaurant mm-hmm. in the small... You know, it was like a Wild West town. And they brought her spaghetti. And she choked on the spaghetti. Her character choked on the spaghetti because she didn't know how to chew noodles. Wow. And she said, oh, you know, she was like, didn't speak English. And he gave her wow. a fork and she didn't know how to use a fork because it what, wasn't chopsticks. What's this film? We need I to know. know what I it need is to find, right I'll find out. But the funny thing is, okay, one, completely historically inaccurate in every single way, because if you follow the history of the world, um, part of the trade with Marco Polo and all these, you know, traders to the East was to get noodles and, yeah. from chi- and spices right. from China spices. and Asia. China and that's rice. where the Italians mm-hmm. got noodles from mm-hmm. China. So they have this Chinese character and she's choking on spaghetti noodles because she oh. doesn't know how to eat. Oh. And also, when did being Asian mean you don't know how to chew? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, very sad. So it's like, yeah, I'm not even true. offended by these things because the racism is so like blatantly ridiculous i think you are offended um i don't know (laughs) if that's the right term i think you're deeply offended and you're deeply disturbed by it you know but we just were so bombarded with it we had to pick and choose what we allowed to receive am i going to receive that today no i didn't just see that 
um, you know, at least for me, you know, that that's what I have to do. I, you know, you can't, you know, take in all this information because, you know, if you do, you would just believe that you're worthless, you're useless, you've made no contributions to society. What I thought was that the filmmakers were worthless. They were making a contribution <laughs> to society and they didn't know. Who is this writer? And, and they didn't know anything about Asian women because oh my. they had, you know, you wrote the station. I should have. They had some actress with like this thick slanty eyed makeup and it was, mm. and you know, they had that. They have, you know, in Breakfast at Tiffany's, they have you know the Chinese character with the buck teeth and right. so it's just anything pre I would say 1950 or 1960 the Asian characters are like are you for real yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it's very true so um, that is interesting and then I want to uh, we have we have a little time, but uh, okay. we're chatting quite a bit. Yeah, so I'm I want to get it's into great. Black Wall Street. So you have just been commissioned to write a screenplay for the film Black Wall Street. I have. Tell me about this. So this is a new film that just kind of fell in my lap. There's a website. I'm not sure if you know of it. It's called Stage32.com. I don't. Tell me. Ah, so it's a fairly new website. I don't even know how old it is. Maybe three to five years old. Um, but it's a place where in which writers, screenwriters, any kind of production crew can post their films and then they can find cast and crew for their films. That's and great. I'll have to check just, it out. Yeah, they can just email each other. So my film for Oscar Micheaux is on there. Uh, it just says that I'm the screenwriter, hopefully the director of my own doggone film. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're listening. I hope my producer is listening to this. Who determines those things? Who determines whether or not you can direct your own film? You know, it just it's just up to, I think, the producer and the director. I think, you know, if you are a director and if that's what you want to do, if you want to direct your own film, then you make a case and say, you know, I want to direct it. But, of course, if it's going to be studio finance, you know, maybe it's up to the financing. So it depends on the money. It, the money it, it dictates does. it. It does. Money often dictates it, but it doesn't mean that, you know, you can't direct your first feature film. Mm-hmm. And I'm pushing to direct my own doggone film. <laughs> and I see with the passionate look in your eyes that you're going to get it. Because <laughs> it's my project. You know what I mean? It's like the most, I think I'm, I'm more passionate about the Oscar Micheaux film than, than I the am post-it? about the other films. Yeah. I am. I am. I'm passionate about both of them. But, you know, this is something that I'm really, really, you know, drawn to. You know, drawn to this story because after the postwoman, I've really taken some time to really study screenwriting, you know, as a profession and to really look more about the story and, you know, creating believable characters. I've just done more research. Um, and, you know, I've grown. You know, I'm still growing as a screenwriter. And I'm still, like, trying to devour as many screenplays as I can. So I can see, like, the growth in my own writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really see it more in the feature film about Black Wall Street. So I was trying to tell you that, that the name of that film is actually called 1921. Mm-hmm. And it looks at... Uh, the bombing of an all-Negro town in 1921 uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, now, a lot of people may know of this story, but um, it was a uh, all-Negro town um, that was bombed uh, by uh, rioters who were in downtown Tulsa after a Negro boy by the name of Dick Rollin uh, was accused of raping a white woman. Um, and, you know, this boy was um, held in the Tulsa County Jail, and the black community from Tulsa came down to defend them. And uh, when they came down to defend him at the Tulsa County, County Jailhouse, a riot ensued. Um, and the mostly white rioters uh, from Tulsa descended on this all-Negro town, and they torched it. Uh, they poured gasoline on the churches, the Negro schools, all the black bil- villages, and they uh, set the town on fire. Um, and um, subsequently, the uh, Tulsa um, government or the police department, they called in uh, authorities and the town was also bombed from the sky. Um, and so it's a part of American history that we don't like to deal with, you know, or address, you know, this bombing of this all Negro town. Um, it's amazing that a lot of us don't really know about the atrocity that happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921. So why is it called Black Wall Street? Why why is that the, the pending name? Um, it's not called Black Wall Street. 
Uh, it's actually called 1921. It's temporarily titled. Oh, temporary. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, but it's been um, very intriguing to go in and do all this research on um, Tulsa, which was formerly called Tallahassee. It was a town that was formerly occupied by Native American Indians. But of course, after President Andrew Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act in 1830, thousands of you know Native American Indians, Cherokee and Creeks were slaughtered in this uh, town called Tallahassee, which means small town. Um, and white settlers moved in and took over the town because they discovered um, oil there, you know. Uh, and so um, it does have a complex history. Um, African Americans who had migrated north from the south seeking better opportunities uh, set up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in a small town called Greenwood. Um, and that was home to Black Wall Street. And it was primarily called Black Wall Street because um, Jim Crow laws were still prevalent in southern uh, Tulsa, mm-hmm. in downtown Tulsa. And so, you know, their access was restricted. Um, you know, there were still lynchings that were rampant. Um, and so they just decided to set up their own community where they would support their own businesses. They would keep the dollars circulating within their own communities. So they built their own churches, their own schools, their own pool house, confectionaries, salons. It was this whole, you know, thriving neighborhood, well-to-do, um, upper to middle-class neighborhood. Um, and that was threatening to a lot of World War One veterans who were returning home after the war and they didn't have jobs and they go up to Greenwood and they see this thriving Negro town, um, you know, and they're unemployed. Um, And so that incited a lot of fear and animosity and anger and jealousy. That is very interesting. What strikes me um, now back to what you originally said, I didn't want to interrupt you, but you're talking about um, the Indian Exclusion Act Mm -hmm. and what you describe. This is so sad sounds a lot like what's going on right now in the Middle East. Mm. Because you said, you know, they found oil mm-hmm. and the the Native Americans were slaughtered right. and white families moved in. And right. it sounds like we're kind of repeating history because right now we're, you know, bombing the heck out of mm-hmm. Afghanistan and other places that happen to be extremely resource rich. Right, right. And then putting American contract contractors in oh yeah yeah that's very profound so when you you said that i just speaking truth right now i just thought of that and i think that's why it's really really important Mm -hmm. for us to study history because we're making a lot of the same mistakes and i think it's up to us as a human consciousness to raise our awareness level and say hey we are evolving we're growing we don't have to make these same mistakes over and over and over again because right. when things happen in the moment people always say well we can't we couldn't foresee the future we didn't know all the damage we were going to do because of you know xyz yeah we do know the damage yeah. because we did it 50 100 years ago right exactly you know exactly i think that's why we need to vote <laughs> and um also i think that it's important to continue to raise awareness about these issues you know that that are happening all over the world in the middle east you know and uh, other parts of the world um you know and to ensure that we vote so that we can get people into congress who will you know advocate on behalf of you know all human beings you know um, and so that we can have, you know, a planet where in which, you know, love rules the planet, you know, fairness and equality and tolerance. You know, I think that that's important. I just don't understand the constant obsession with exploiting natural resources and exploiting people instead of finding a sustainable way of living. And I mm-hmm. don't think it's a progressive or liberal agenda. It's a human agenda. Look, we can't just keep... We're on one planet. This is what I don't get about these selfish ideologies. Right. It's like, look, dum-dum, we all live on the same planet. We mm-hmm. can't escape. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe... And we're all affected by it. We're right? all affected what by affects, it. Maybe... You know, this area affects us. Maybe in 10, 20, 30, 300 years, we'll be able to live on Mars. But right now, everyone's trapped on this rock we call Earth. <laughs> and everything that you trapped do... on the rock. And everything you do affects other people. So when people are, you know, poisoning food supplies with genetically modified food when people are doing all sorts of things it's like look Uh dum-dum you live here too like why are you polluting the air etc etc when you have to live here Mm -hmm. not just me Mm -hmm. you have to live here we haven't established 
um, individual biosphere domes around us, no, you know, don't. We individual share resources, domes. we share the water, you know, we share the air, you know, and we share the planet. So that is very interesting. Um, I am. Yes. Can I give you the website? Yes, yes, yes. Now? Tell me everything so I can share with my listeners. Sure. So the 1921 film about the bombing of Black Wall Street, you can find out more about that. It's on Black Wall Street. <laughs> I believe it's movie.com. Blackwallstreetmovie.com. Do you guys have a Kickstarter for raising money or are you guys uh, self-producing? Not for that one. Um, I believe it's going to be studio produced. Um, you know, but, but as far as I know right now, we're just at the script stage. So I'm only on act two in that one. So wish me luck. I have to get through <laughs> act two and then we'll, we'll come back and maybe do some more shows. But it's been announced that, that I'm one of the co-writers on this film with another uh, amazing uh, uh, writer and artist. His name is Funk Face and he's the original story creator. I'm just helping him to write the screenplay. Okay. And then Oscar Michelle. Sure. So the Oscar Michaud feature film, you can find out more about that on our website. It's www.oscarmichaudmovie.com. You got to spell Michaud. You got to spell Michaud for us. (laughs) (laughs) You got to spell it. You got to spell it. So it's Oscar and it's Michaud. And that's M-I-C-H-E-A-U-X.com. And I have to tell you something. Yes. So the same producer, Presnell Holmes, who produced Malcolm X, Spike Lee's Malcolm X in 1992, he he's going to be producing the Oscar Michaud feature film with my co-producer Monica Cooper, uh, and they've produced uh, a number of feature films, including um, the last film that was out, and you know it escapes me right now. Um, but they've done a number of films by Spike Lee, uh, Thin Line Between Love and Hate. They've, they've done a number of films together. I am very excited for you. And the postwoman is almost done and ready or developmental? It is. The script is finished and we've uh, successfully raised uh, Kickstarter funds for our feature film. We've been chronicled in IndieWire after Ellen Huffington Post. Um, that uh, our website for that film is www.thepostwomanmovie.com and you guys are on Twitter for updates we're also on Twitter I use that Twitter for absolutely everything so I noticed <laughs> <laughs> I know it's my first Twitter account so I use it it's at postwomanmovie and I use it for all my other feature films and you guys please 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 support independent films true independent films and if you're a writer get out there and get your stuff on paper because we need diverse and interesting and unique writers um thank you so much for being on the podcast well put thank you so much i haven't done a podcast in a long time so thanks for putting up with me well we are very happy to have you guys please go on out of the box podcast.com and click on the donate button we're now accepting litecoins and bitcoins for all of you techie nerds out there in the bitcoin world and I need comments and subscribers on iTunes and Stitcher, so please leave a positive comment, and I will be sure to send you a goodie if you at me on Twitter at Funny Rosie. Have a wonderful day, and thank you for being part of Out of the Box today. Bye.